Hey, welcome back everybody to Civil Action. Brian Kabatek along with, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself today. I'm Sean Kernikian here. Hi Sean, how's it going? Good. We're not physically in the same room together. We're under lockdown and we're, we're keeping a safe distance. Uh, I'm very happy about that because I don't have to spend that much time with Brian. So that's always good news. How are we're you, not Brian? supposed to do the bad jokes anymore, Sean. We're supposed to be kind to each other. Okay, I'll try. It's very difficult. So part of being kind to each other is getting together um, on a regular basis now and doing podcasts of recent cases that have come down from California Supreme Court, Court of Appeal, Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court, sometimes other interesting statutes and rules that came down. And uh, today, I think our focus is on mostly consumer protection cases. Um, we've got four pretty interesting, pretty juicy cases. These are long, long, long cases that we spent a lot of time um, reading, and we're going to try to summarize each one in about five minutes. So, Sean, first of all, where can people find us? How can they respond to us? And what can we do for them? They can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We're on most social media platforms. We have attorney resources up on our website. We have recordings of other podcasts that we've done, webinars, seminars that we've done. Um, and, you know, stay in touch with us. You know, everyone's locked down, but we're still out there. Our mission is to keep you informed and entertained and educated. Right, Brian? That's one of our missions. We have many missions. That's one of our missions. Yeah. And so, Sean, we've got some interesting cases today. Uh, tell folks about what the four cases are that we're going to be covering. First, we're going to cover a case that involves the question of whether a literally true statement is false advertising. And spoiler alert, no. Um, next, we're going to cover oh, a case. I gave it away. I gave it. I'm sorry. Yeah, so suspenseful. Next, we're going to cover a case that has to do with the overlap between legal claims like breach contract and equitable claims like UCL and false advertising claims. Uh, and how the law of the case applies. And then next, we're going to talk about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and what's required in the disclosures that have to do with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And lastly, we're going to talk about a little startup from Northern California called Facebook and a class action settlement and injunctive relief and objections to attorney's fees and a big fight that happened over there. So let's just jump in and deal with our first case right now with our promise that we're going to try to keep the discussion of each case to no more than five minutes, because like I said at the beginning, monster, long, complicated, well-written cases. The first one comes from the second appellate district, second DCA uh, in Los Angeles. This involves 17200, the unfair competition law and a case called Schaefer versus Khalifa Farms. So Khalifa Farms makes what product? They make tangerine juice called cuties, cutie juice. Have you ever had tangerine juice? I have not. I've had tangerines, but never had tangerine juice specifically. Do you think tangerine juice with vodka would be good? Probably, yes. Because? Because vodka. Right. Okay, so this case involved a very, quote-unquote, interesting, shall we say, theory which is the label on the juice said 100% tangerine juice, no sugar added, never from concentrate. And they sued based on that. And their theory was, number one, that it would likely lead to deceive consumers by implication that it was a low-calorie beverage. That was one of their claims. That competing, bands, competing brands would contain sugar and therefore... Cutie's uh, juice is different and healthier. So, Sean, let's jump in and explain what happened here. Well, I can I can give that away, which is the court threw the case out on a demur. Okay. Yeah. So, 
There's what happened, and that's how it ended up in the Court of Appeal. So let's now go through what happened here once it made it to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, so the Court of Appeal kind of goes through the requirements or the elements of a UCL and false advertising and CLRA claim. So under the UCL, you need a business act or practice that is either fraudulent, unlawful, or unfair. So it kind of looks to see what the standards are for these things. And to establish that something's fraudulent, you have to show that members of the public are likely to be deceived, but that's that standard is viewed through the eyes of the reasonable consumer. Um, so you need something that's untrue or a statement that it can be true, but misleading or has the likelihood to mislead the reasonable consumer. And the standards under the false advertising law and the CLRA are also, are also the same. They use a reasonable consumer test. So the UCL is kind of the best lens to look at this through. Um, right. and the, and, you know, the courts have been pretty harsh on um, these kind of unfair competition cases recently. There's been some decisions down that have come down that have been bad. Um, but I think that this decision is actually a pretty clear and concise decision, particularly when it comes to false advertising, because that's really what they were pursuing here was a false advertising claim. And, and it sort of, it set up what the court referred to as the spectrum of false advertising. So let, let's talk about that spectrum. And, and, I'll start by the first end of the spectrum, which are statements which are clearly untrue. These are just advertising statements that a business makes affirmatively misrepresenting its business or its label or its product, which is which is actually untrue and by definition false, fraudulent, et cetera. And so that end of the spectrum is pretty clear. But Got where it. do we go from there? Then we go to statements about the product that are literally true, but nevertheless deceptive and misleading in their implications. So right. things, things that are true, but, but, but they're going to imply that, you know, this product has no sugar added, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's good for your health because it has no sugar added, but it might be something that's bad for your health, even though it has no sugar added, something like right. that. An affirmative statement, though, which is literally out of space true, but if you dig deep into it, it misrepresents. And then we get to the far end of the spectrum, which the court said are statements about a business which are affirmative or, or the product, which are affirmative and true, but which on their face don't mention or otherwise refer to a competing product. And that is what the case was here. Well, before we even get to that, they mentioned a third third stop in the spectrum, which is uh, a statement that's true, but implies something else about its competing product. For example, here, if they said, we're the only one without sugar added, that would be a violation. But then they get to what Brian said, which is true, doesn't mention or implicate any of its competitors. And what do they say about that furthest end of the spectrum, Brian? They say that that's not actionable as a matter of law, and they found specifically that this case fell into that category because the statements made, which were were um, didn't imply anything about the product, other product. It was sort of this implication theory, and the court said no, that doesn't meet the standard as a matter of law. That's not actionable. You can't bring false advertising for that. So they upheld the um, the the lower court's ruling. Uh, sustained the demur without leave. They said, you don't get leave. And they said, besides, and I thought this was the last interesting point about the case. They said, if you had a rational reason to otherwise plead this case, you at least had an obligation to make like an offer of proof. My, That's my words, not theirs. 
at the trial court level about what the other pleading would say. Otherwise, uh, leave to amend was properly denied. So that's our first case today. I think we held that to about five minutes. Let's go to our next case, Shelton. Next is Rincon EV Realty LLC versus CP3 Rincon Towers. It's from the First District Court of Appeal, originates in San Francisco. And this has to do with equitable claims versus uh, legal claims. So kind of long tortured history here. I'll try to summarize it. In 2007, the plaintiffs borrowed $110 million from Bear Stearns to finance the purchase of a building in San Francisco. In 2010, they defaulted and CP, the defendant here, purchased the property at a non-judicial foreclosure sale. And then the plaintiffs sued CP and, and some others, alleging both legal claims like breach of contract fraud, slander of title, trade secret, misappropriation, and also equitable claims like unfair competition. And they wanted to set aside, as part of the relief of that equitable claim, they wanted to set aside the foreclosure sale. So now, the general rule in California is that, that equitable claims are not um, subject to a jury trial. You don't have the right of a jury trial, but your right of a jury trial is inviolate in most cases in California with respect to factual claims, legal claims, like the claims here. But this was a mixed bag. And the case, we'll, we'll circle back in a moment and talk about this legal, this issue of what can be tried to a jury and what can't. But the case ended up being tried originally to the court because the court made an erroneous ruling about jury trial waiver. Um, and so it was all tried to the court. The court made specific findings of fact and conclusions of law that pertain to both equitable and legal claims, went up to the Court of Appeal the first time, and the court found that the equitable claims in, were, were fine and sustained the court's ruling on the legal um, and factual findings, but rejected the waiver of the jury trial. So it returns the lower court for further consideration. Right. It's, it said, go back and, and go. Now you can go back and try the legal claims like the fraud and breach of contract and those claims. So on remand, the case gets assigned to a different judge. And that judge finds that the prior trial court's findings in the bench trial as to the equitable claims effectively bar any of the plaintiff's remaining legal claims. The defendant files a summary judgment motion and the new trial judge says, yeah, I have to take the factual findings made by the previous trial judge and apply them here. And doing so, I find that all of these have to be dismissed. And and now this is what the Court of Appeal is looking at. So it goes back up to the Court of Appeal at this point. And the Court of Appeal looks at it and the argument is, that the judge in the second trial, the the plaintiff's argument is the judge in the second trial shouldn't have considered the rulings that the judge made in the first trial because we had the right to a jury trial and we were deprived of our right of jury trial. And the court, uh, the court of appeal in a word said no. What they said was those rules, rulings that the court made with respect to the equitable claims, the findings of fact and conclusions of law are binding on a subsequent trial court after it comes back from the court of appeal. And that's called law of the case. And there's lots of ways that law of the case can appear in your case. But here, it appeared because the appellate decision made final the judge's rulings in the first trial on those findings, facts, conclusions of law. And as a result of that, the um, the trial, the second judge was bound by those decisions, even though they would have been otherwise subject to a right to a jury trial. Yeah, the ultimate kind of principle here is that in a case involving both legal and equitable claims, findings made uh, on the 
one set of claims are binding on the, the subsequent disposition of the other set of claims, no matter what order they're in. And here it was the equitable ones first, and they lost on that. And unfortunately, it's binding upon the legal claims. So they, by, by law, they lose on legal claims. Now, the court does propose sort of a, a solution here, which I think is a practical solution, and people should watch out for it, which is that plaintiffs could have dropped the equitable claims before they even got into it when they realized, oh, crap, we're only going to try the equitable claims to the court, and that's gonna, that might bar us from trying uh, our legal claims to a jury. They could have dropped it, and they could have said, okay, well, we're just going to proceed with the legal claims, but that's not right, Sean. So let me let me highlight this again. I think what the court is saying here is that the trial judge has the right to try the equitable claims first, and the trial judge, of course, can use his or her discretion and try them later. And I've been in trials where the seventy two hundred is is kind of put in the back, and the jury trial goes forward. And um, but other times, but the court here specifically says the judges can try those equitable first, and so the court kind of sets up a maybe easy to follow, maybe not so easy to follow standard. They say, look, you could drop your equitable claims in whole or in part if you want to preserve your right to a jury trial. And then you could try the, the, the jury trial part and not have to worry about an adverse income. Maybe that's practical, maybe that isn't. But I will say, kind of in conclusion about this case, that this is an ongoing dispute in California about whether or not even um, equitable claims in 7200 should be entitled to a right of a jury trial. And stay tuned because I think you're going to see more on that in the future. Let's go to the next case. So next case is Walker versus Fred Meyer Incorporated. And that's from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal originated in the uh, District Court for Oregon. What's Uh, Fred Meyer? Fred Meyer is like Kroger, Kroger brand of companies. They're they're a a supermarket grocery store. I think Um, they own Ralph. Yeah, I think so. And Have you been to a supermarket recently, Sean? I haven't. I've been avoiding it, but I have had to go sometimes because I've ran out of ice cream and cereal. Uh, So, you know, just beer and beer. Yes. Um, So in 2007, Mr. Walker, the plaintiff here, applied for a job with Fred Meyer Supermarkets. And uh, Fred Meyer gave him a what's called a little disclosure about uh, that's required under the Fair Credit Reporting Act that disclosed among other things, that Fred Meyer is going to be obtaining a consumer report on him, like a credit report from one of the credit agencies. And it also contained a, a few other statements, a few other paragraphs, and they're saying, we're also going to investigate this, and you have the right to do this. And uh, based on that, we're going to make a decision. So it went on for about four or five paragraphs. Um, and then ultimately, the report came back, and I guess something in there made uh Fred Meyer upset about his background or questioned his veracity. And Fred Meyer told him, we're not going to hire you. Um, you, you can, you know, you, you can go back and dispute this with the credit report, but we're not going to hire you. Um, and Mr. Walker brings a class action against Fred Meyer, alleging that those two things, the report, uh, the disclosure itself and the, um, adverse, the pre-adverse action notice violated the FCRA. So let's be very clear about this. What he argued about with the the disclosure form is that the FCRA requires a clear and unambiguous disclosure form, which we'll talk about in a moment. And secondly, he argued that he should have been given notice that he had a right to dispute with uh, the defendant in this case, Fred Meyer, his credit report, not with just the credit agency. So that being the jumping off point, um, this case comes on uh, after, I guess, a, a 12B6 granting of a motion to dismiss. And the first thing the court looks at is whether or not 
the uh, statement, the disclosure statement in the first instant was clear and, and conspicuous. That's the rule. And what Fred Meyer apparently had done was they had coupled the clear and inconspicuous disclosure statement with other facts or other other disclosures. Yeah, if you look at the, it's actually in the opinion, I'm glad they put it in there, they just talk about it. But there's one paragraph that says, we, we are going to obtain one or more consumer reports about you for employment purposes. So, and then it goes on to say, we're going to get it through this agency. And then there's another paragraph that says, to prepare these reports, they're going to, they might investigate your education, work history. And then there's a, a paragraph that says, you have the right to inspect, in, inspect these files and get a copy of the report. Then, then there's another paragraph that says what they're going to do with the report once they get it. And the court says that that's, too much because the FCRA, the, the provision in the FCRA about this says that the disclosure has to be, quote, in a document that consists solely of the disclosure, end quote. And they find that here, these five paragraphs or, or the four paragraphs in addition to the disclosure is too much. It, it doesn't meet that requirement of solely contained in one document, right? Right. The Ninth Circuit's almost apologetic in, it, in its opinion and says, we understand why they provided this additional information, but it should have been put in another document because it's likely to confuse. And they agreed that it was likely to pull the applicant's attention away from very specific statutorily guaranteed privacy rights and not make it clear to the, to the applicant. So that took care. So they, they're going to send the case back. So they're sending the case back. But now they looked at the other argument that um, Walker raised in this case, which was the disclosure statement said, if you have anything that you disagree with in your credit report, you can go to the credit agency. And his argument was, well, it should have said that I have the right to dispute it with with um, with the Kroger family, Fred Meyer companies, and not just the credit reporting agency. And so what does the court ultimately conclude there? They ultimately say that, no, they don't need to give you the opportunity to dispute it with the employer or discuss it with the employer. They say that the, all the FCRA requires is to let you know that you can dispute it with the with the credit agency or the, whoever's reporting uh, on, on your credit. But it doesn't require a right or opportunity to dispute it with the employer. And, and this is where I think Brian and I, while we're not on any court of appeal, uh, we would disagree because... You know, what if you have some piece of conclusive proof that explains, no, 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 that's that's the that's a different person. That's not me that has that debt. Here's a piece of paper that explains this conclusively. You don't have the right to or opportunity to present that to the employer. And I think that's unfair because maybe if you had that opportunity, the employer would also benefit because they'd say, Oh, great, otherwise this guy is good. And now that he's explained himself, we're gonna hire him. So they ultimately find that the law doesn't require that. Yeah, and, and like I said, I like I, I agree with you, Sean. I think that's where we part company with the Court of Appeal here, which is probably not unusual. And I have no chance of ever being on a Court of Appeal. You, you're a smart young person. You might be on a Court of Appeal someday. But I would have said that that's, that's more problematic because what's the employee supposed to do? Okay, we're keeping on track here with about five minutes. And our last case today involves some company called Facebook. So, Sean, can we start before we even get into the facts of this opinion? What is a Facebook? A Facebook? I, I don't know. I've been hearing a lot about it. It's a website where you can talk to your friends, I think, and post pictures of, of you know. Your, what if you don't have any friends? 
I don't. Maybe I can use it to make friends. I don't know. But wait, but, are we treading over into those bad jokes again that we, we get criticized for? Okay. We are. Well, let's talk about the case. The case is Campbell versus St. John. It comes out of the Ninth Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal from the Northern District of California. This involves an underlying class action, uh, which arose from Facebook's practice of capturing and using URL content in its users' personal Facebook messages without their consent. Um, and I'd like to call it what it is. This is effectively spying. What we're doing? What? I don't know, Sean. I listen. I've got a great company with you here this time. Uh, I don't think Facebook intentionally collected people's URL data and then built profiles of the individual users to be able to target advertising to those people. I don't think that was intentional. Is that? Are you suggesting that? <laughs> That's not their business model, is it? That's not no, how they. I think Facebook is is a public in like the public domain, and they do things like this to help people. Right. For the public good, the greater good of, of society. Right. What they're really what they're doing here, just so it's clear, and this doesn't have to do that much with the opinion, but what they're what they're doing here is if you and I were chatting on Facebook and private messages and I sent you a link about be weird. Okay, but go on. Kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. But if I sent you a link or you sent me a link to a website, Facebook will capture that and go, okay, Brian and Sean are talking about this. They're both interested in this. Build that into their profile. Then you know, go out and sell their profiles for targeted advertising. That's really what, what they're doing here. And they didn't have user consent. So that's how the, the class action started. But it ultimately settled with yeah. injunction relief that involved presumably Facebook not necessarily stopping their practices, but disclosing to people that they're doing this. I think um, it's important to point out, Sean, that this case um, went on for quite some time, uh, and there was kind of a torture, not a really torture history here, but it was heavily litigated for about six or seven years. The case uh, ended up class cert getting granted, um, and then protracted negotiations, and ultimately it ended up with this injunction and with about $3.5 million in attorney's fees. Yeah, the lawyers had sought like $7 million or something, but they ultimately got $3.5 million. But then what happened is um, uh, uh, some people decided to object to the settlement before the final fairness hearing. And their arguments in support of their objection was that the amount of attorney's fees is disproportionate to what the class is getting out of here, uh, out of this, and that there is some, some indicia of collusion between uh, the, the parties on both sides. And while yeah. we could certainly go down a number of different rabbit holes in this case, yeah. one thing the court also did was a Spokio analysis, which is a case from the United States Supreme Court. And in Spokio, um, the Supreme Court about four years ago had a rule that judges are supposed to look to determine whether or not the litigant had standing under Article 3, uh, and that requires an injury in fact. And here they said that plaintiffs actually do have an injury in fact. And I think you know, maybe maybe this is a good precedent for it, although we've seen it before, once and for all establishing that if somebody's taking your private information, that even though you might not be able to monetize that in any concrete sense, it is an injury in fact. So they conclude that it's an injury in fact, and then they look at the settlement and what and 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 what they focused on here, what the objector focused on here, was other cases which have held that injunctive, re- worthless injunctive relief is not a benefit to the class. And they threw those words around and they said worthless um, injunctive relief, worthless injunctive relief. And the court looked at this and they evaluated the injunctive relief. Yeah, and they looked at the injunctive relief and said that 
it's fine. There's no disproportionality here because the class didn't have to give up much to receive the, uh, the relief that they got. Um, it's not like they had some very high value claim that they were giving up. It's not like they agreed to do something or not do something. They, they just got the injunctive relief and they didn't give anything up. So it's, it's not, it's, and it's not worthless necessarily. And looking at what was what the consideration that was given by the class, there's not much consideration given. So they find that the injunctive relief had some value and it's not necessarily disproportionate to award $3.9 million in attorney fees after this was litigated for many, right. many years. So all injunctive relief is not worthless injunctive relief. And they did an analysis. And then the final analysis they did in this case is under a a famous case called Bluetooth, where you're supposed to look and determine whether or not there's subtle signs that a a settlement might be collusive between class counsel and defense counsel. For example, disproportionate distribution of settlement, negotiate clear sailing agreements, a kicker provision to reduce fees and um, to have a reversion where the money goes back to the company. And they looked at these facts and they said, look, you know, we get it. Those are factors you look at, but they're not just because those factors are there doesn't mean the settlement is fatal. It just means you have to look at those factors. So ultimately, at the end of the day, they upheld the settlement. They said it was fine and it was good and um, it was a fair settlement of the circumstances. Man, it's harder and harder to bring good class action cases. I mean, this is a righteous case where people were stealing information and the objectors in this case, you know, are, um, have their own agenda. And, uh, they obviously wanted to put this case, um, out there to try to make new law, which is fine. It's their legal right, but it is just harder and harder to bring decent class actions to try to protect the public. And, you know, you look at some of these cases and some of them are, uh, you, you wonder what they're thinking and is the plaintiff's bar doing more harm than good when they bring some cases. And, and on the other hand, you look at cases like this and it's like, hey, man, this is righteous stuff and it's protecting people in America and consumers. So yeah, anyway, I'm off my soap. I'm off my soapbox, Sean. You can yeah. close it. We'll, we'll both be on one of the courts of appeal soon. So don't worry, we can get back on our soapbox at that point. But that's all, that's all we have for today. You, you're, you're, you can finish now listening to our rants, um, but we hope you enjoyed this. Check us out online at kbklawyers.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Reach out to us. We love hearing from you. We do get a lot of positive feedback. We do get suggestions or ideas. So keep that coming. And, and thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.